We know that every part of the criminal justice system needs transformational change. We've heard about this with police, prosecution, the courts, and prisons. But what about public defense? What reform looks like for public defenders? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, ready to answer those Ask Dave questions you might have and still somehow making it work in that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We've been talking about police reform in this country, it seems like, well, forever. The discussion of mass incarceration and how to change that, that goes back years already, and we've been seeing the election of reform-minded prosecutors in some places over the last half-dozen years. The pace of this discussion, its urgency and depth, and the number of people active in it in their own communities, all of that really picked up after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020 with the many demonstrations that took place through the summer of that year. It reached everywhere, including the presidential election campaign. Even former President Trump who was otherwise dismissive, shall we say, of efforts to stand up for racial justice, touted his administration's championing of the First Step Act. The Biden campaign, of course, took a much different tack, calling for reform of, well, just about everything in the system you can think of. Here's a little audio. It's from a Biden campaign ad. Uh, thus, the swelling emotional music you have to ignore. And even just 30 seconds will give you the sense of what I'm talking about. Listen up. That's why I propose a comprehensive criminal package in this campaign. It begins with passing the Safe Justice Act. But my plan goes further. No mandatory minimums, the end of private prison, additional funding for drug courts, bail reform, no juveniles at all in adult prisons, mandatory treatment, not jail for those with drug addiction, decriminalizing marijuana, automatically expunging records for marijuana conviction, job training education while you're in prison. No one should be going to jail because they are addicted. They should be going into rehabilitation. Wow, that's a lot. Mandatory minimums, private prisons, drug courts, bail reform, drug rehabilitation, you name it. And there are other things he doesn't say that come in brief words on the screen, like police and prosecutorial misconduct. Now, I'm not doubting Biden's sincerity at all, but there is one thing missing from all of what he says, even from the Biden team's point of view. He does not say anything about the desperate need for reform, change, and transformation of the nation's public defense system. Public defenders, lawyers appointed by courts to represent the accused, and the like, when a person faces criminal charges but has no money for a lawyer. The most we get from the Biden ad is a very quick set of words, invest in public defenders, on the screen. But that means what exactly? Now, in the landmark case of Gideon versus Wainwright in 1963, the Supreme Court said that anyone charged with a felony who wants to be represented by a lawyer but who cannot afford one is entitled to a lawyer's representation at the state's expense. The court later extended this right to misdemeanors that end in jail sentences. But the court did not describe how this was supposed to work. Would we have lawyers appointed by courts one by one? Would we have public defender agencies? The court never said. It just kind of left the whole thing to the states. And the states have created a messy patchwork, generally poor and vastly underfunded, just a jumble of approaches to this, leaving those most vulnerable at the mercy of a system 
that does little for them. And you don't have to think very hard, of course, to understand that this will have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. This has meant a perpetual crisis in criminal defense for the poor ever since the Gideon case created the right to representation. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not putting down public defenders. Not at all. I was one myself. It's a difficult job and one I dearly loved. But the system created for public defense, that is the problem. That, in a word, is indefensible in so many places in this country. One might almost think that the government was trying to set up public defenders to fail. Imagine that. But there are those people, those individuals out there who are paying close attention to this issue, have done so for years, and are trying to explain the impact of what the crisis in public defense means to the country, and especially to marginalize communities everywhere. And we have one of the people who is foremost in those discussions with us today, someone who doesn't just think about this. He's somebody who acts and has a plan and a way to address this whole set of issues. He's actually been a guest here before, and I'm so glad to have him back. Jonathan Rapping is the founder and president of Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit public defender organization whose mission is to transform the system by creating a movement that educates and equips public defenders from around the country to provide equal justice for marginalized communities. He is also a professor at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. Gideon's Promise, his organization, was started in 2007 with a single training program for 16 attorneys working in two public defender offices, one in Georgia and one in Louisiana. It's now a national model with over 1,000 participants in over 100 public defender offices trained in 29 different states and the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's now expanded, first into a three-year program and then into a more comprehensive model offering help and programming to support public defenders at every stage of their careers, from brand new law students to newly hired public defenders to supervisors and trainers and even public defender agency leaders. Jonathan Rapping is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and other awards. Some of you may remember Jonathan's conversation with me way back in episode 18, and as I said, so glad to have him back with us to discuss how public defense fits into the efforts to transform the whole criminal justice system. And we're also going to talk to him about his book, Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice published in 2020 by Beacon Press. We've got a link to the book up on our website. And of course, you can find it at your own independent bookstores as well as online. Jonathan Rapping, welcome to Criminal Injustice. David, it is great to be back back with you. Uh, you know, episode 18 was one of the highlights of my career thus far. <laughs> well, you're kind. I appreciate you coming back after that. Um, let's start with some basics. So everybody's kind of on the same page. Gideon versus Wainwright back in 1963. Supreme Court says in that case that anybody who's charged with a felony uh, who wanted a lawyer but couldn't afford one would get one at state expense. And then later on expands that to cover misdemeanors that end up in a jail sentence. Otherwise, the court says it's not fair. It's just not fair to try people without a lawyer. But the court didn't really mandate how the states or the counties or whoever was involved, whatever government, any, how they were to carry this out, carry out the constitutional obligations. So maybe you could sketch out for us uh, what kind of systems are in place across the United States to deliver public defense service? A person needs a lawyer, wants a lawyer, can't afford a lawyer. What are the possibilities? Yeah, absolutely, David. And I think, you know, as long as we're talking about Gideon versus Wainwright, I think it's important to point out um, that that case was decided in 1963, uh, a time in our nation's history when we were grappling with 
um, our failure to provide basic civil and human rights in all walks of life, right? In yes. education, in commerce, in voting. Um, it was, you know, less than a decade after the 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 landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education, which That's was a right. rights case in education. It was around the same time that 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 Congress uh, legis that that that. Uh, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. Um, it was really part of, I think, a civil rights revolution. It was a recognition that these civil rights violations were also occurring in the criminal legal system. And it birthed public defenders really as civil rights lawyers. This was a civil rights issue um, disproportionately impacting people of color then. Um, and I think it made a promise during a time in our nation's history when we when we very much wanted to rectify nearly 400 years of civil rights abuses, that public defenders could help do that in the criminal legal system. And as you point out, nearly 60 years later, that mandate, that promise remains unfulfilled. Um, and I think the reason why is because, as you say, the court never dictated how those services were to be delivered. That's and right. And, and it just said to the states, you do it. And some states took it on at a statewide level. Some states punted to counties and poorer counties provided less services than wealthier counties. Um, some, some places saw professional public defender offices develop with full-time public defenders, lawyers whose only job was representing people who couldn't afford lawyers. And other places turned to private counsel. Um, judges would appoint them. And you can imagine the perverse incentives that that popped up as, as people wanted to make sure they were in the good graces of the judges. So maybe they wouldn't fight too hard. They wouldn't litigate too hard. They wouldn't ask for too much money. Um, and other places have have assigned, have, I'm sorry, contract systems where literally the lowest bidder gets a contract to represent everybody accused of a crime who can't afford a lawyer. And, and again, perverse incentives. Perverse incentives um, by, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I, I think that, 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 that since Gideon was decided, we see resource challenges. We see structural challenges that really hamper the independence of lawyers to push back against the systems um, that are processing the people they serve. Um, and that's really what we're grappling with today, David. Yeah. So, so many of those civil rights challenges, and I think that's a really important point. That's what this was part of, remain today and are as sharp as ever. Uh, and so uh, when you are watching this and you come to the idea that public defenders and the public defense system needs some kind of support, needs to have a real backbone built into it, however you want to put it, uh, that's the moment when you turn to uh, uh, start uh, Gideon's Promise in 2007. And I think you, you started it along with your wife. Isn't that correct? That, that's right. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I, I thank you for pointing that out because I don't think that I can talk about Gideon's Promise without talking about my wife who brings a, a, an equally important and complementary perspective to the work. She's not a lawyer. Um, in the book, uh, I start the book with a story about how she was first impacted by the criminal legal system at the age of five, when her father was arrested, charged with crimes he committed years earlier. He was, um, by the time he was charged, he had turned his life around. He was a small business owner. He was married. He had three children. She was the oldest at five. Her mother was pregnant with her baby brother at the time. Her father was married. Um, and he was arrested, charged with crimes he committed years earlier and given a public defender. And that public defender never told his story, never introduced the whole person to the system. And without that story, without that context being shared, her father was processed through the system and sentenced to 10 years in Attica. And so she grew up knowing her, knowing her father from behind bars. And, and David, something she said, said to me that really, I think, is at the heart of the work we do is she said, you know, what was even harder than growing up knowing my father from behind bars was coming to the realization that the people I love, most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system. 
She grew up in a low-income Black community in Buffalo. She said, it's coming to the realization that the people I love don't matter. And primarily, that message was delivered to that five-year-old girl, that family, by a public defender. He was the face that they saw of the system. And I don't even think he realized the disservice he was doing, not only to the man standing next to him, but to his five-year-old daughter and her siblings and her family. And there are children all across the country who are being told every day by the, by the way that public defenders serve or don't serve their loved ones, that they don't matter. That's why public defenders are so critical, David. And so moving from that incredible story, along with your life partner, you set up this organization, which starts small, as we said in your introduction, uh, but its values seem to have remained in place, very solid. What's the overall objective of the program, both when you started it and up to right now? So I, I think it is an, it's evolved. Uh, David, I, I started, and I, I recall talking about this when we first talked. Yes. I started my career in Washington, D.C. It's one of the handful of offices in the country um, where public defenders really are able to give every client the representation they deserve. They have, I mean, I, I worked seven days a week, 70 hours a week, but, but by putting that time in, um, I had manageable caseloads. I was able to meet with my clients. I was able to do the research and the investigation needed. Um, and, and after a decade of doing that, I moved to Georgia. Um, after Katrina, I did work in New Orleans. I did some work in Alabama, Mississippi. And it was really the first time I realized that there were these young, passionate public defenders who were coming to this work for all the right reasons, uh, but these systems were beating the spirit out of them. And so Gideon's Promise really started as an organization to take these young lawyers, and I should say new lawyers, because they weren't all young. Right, some might not be. Right, right, take these new lawyers, and, and, and get them within the early years of their practice where you develop habits, whether they're good or bad, and nurture their values, nurture their passion, give them not only skills training, but support strategies to res resist systemic pressures, to abandon your ideals. Um, and it started really as a program to support new young lawyers to go back to offices practice the way they wanted to practice, and start to bring those values into the office. As you mentioned in the introduction, David, it's, it's really evolved into so much more. We now, I think, see ourselves as a movement of public defender offices that collectively see ourselves as allies with the communities we serve, the vehicles to lift up those voices, to shine a light on the dignity and the humanity that's ignored, and to actually be the conscience of systems, of criminal legal systems that have lost their way, to actually change the culture of the systems. We see public defender organizations as a critical engine to overall systemic culture change. So people might come for the training from anywhere in the United States, any office, anywhere, and they get what the organization can do as far as their values and, and giving them the wherewithal to respond to pressure, to keep doing the job in the right way, to bring this, this uh, very healthy culture uh, with them back to their own organizations. And the idea is to spread this through the public defender arena everywhere. That's right. So it's not just a handful of offices in DC, New York, San Francisco, several other places, but that that spirit, that culture, that client-centered ethos is present in Shreveport, Louisiana, Augusta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, all across the country. Yeah. So as you, as you engage in this work and as the organization has evolved, um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have faced? Do you have uh, the sense that uh, your the people you've trained are 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 progressing in the right way. Do you are you able to stay in touch? Do you have a feeling that the work is penetrating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just um, you know as we record today, we are 
um, three days removed from finishing our, we, we do an annual summer program. This, this summer we had to do it virtually, but we had 600 public defenders from across the country. Those are both lawyers and non-lawyer public defenders, investigators, social workers, administrative professionals, um, people who are all gathering, not just to, again, get skills training, but because they want to feed their passion and the, their, their, their reason for coming into this work in the first place. I think that probably the biggest challenge that they face is quite frankly, they are in systems that don't care about poor people. They don't care about people of color. They are systems that, that perpetuate economic and racial injustice. And what that does to your spirit, the emotional trauma that our public defenders bring home with them is really hard to deal with. And I think that is the greatest challenge and, and, and running into professionals in the system, whether they're judges, prosecutors, sometimes lawyers in their own offices who have become jaded, who have come to accept a sub, subpar uh, uh, standard of justice. It does violence to your soul and, I, and, and your spirit. And so much of what we're about is not just teaching skills, but helping support that spirit that public defenders need to keep resisting injustice. It, you know, that's an overlooked idea, I think, in this kind of work and many other kinds, too, that, you you know, if you if you find your your reasons for doing the job the right way constantly ground into the dirt, it becomes real hard to go on. And so what I hear you saying is that as much as training them to examine a witness or do a do a good closing argument, you're talking at least as much about sustaining the feelings and the the spirit as you say that's a good word for it to be able to go and do the work the proper way to really serve people no matter what the system is telling you every day yeah that's right i mean you teach law school david as do i and and, and i next week i will meet with our incoming class and each year i do that during orientation and i always sort of share with them this this quote from an unnamed, unnamed law student says, the first thing I lost in law school is the reason why I came. Uh -huh. and, I, and I say to my students, to my future students, I say, you're about to enter a first year curriculum where the law will be reduced to rules and doctrine, to black letters on a white page. And before you know it, you'll forget that there are even people behind these cases. And I challenge my students. I say, at the end of your first year, I want you to come to me and share with me one story about a person behind any of the dozens of cases you've read. And, and they can't do it because that's not part of our law school curriculum. And it's the beginning of a process of teaching lawyers that good lawyering is about embracing a mechanical process to problem solve. There's no room for feeling. There's no room for empathy. There's no room for compassion. There's no need to know the human beings and their stories. And I think so much of what we see in the criminal legal system is the continuation of the idea that these aren't people. These are cases that are used that we process to efficiently get to the end. And we have to teach our lawyers, and I think we need to teach judges and prosecutors, we have to remind them of the people, of the importance of empathy and how to use it and not lose it uh, when, they're, when they're practicing in the system. And it's a very hard thing to maintain when you face the kind of pressures that public defender lawyers do. I mean, I think uh, one of the things I remember uh, reading that you talked about was, uh, you know, what would you see if you were to walk into uh, a court in, in any medium-sized city or big city, small town? What kind of things would you see if you walked in there just to give listeners a feel for what a public defender would be facing? Yeah, so I, 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 another story from the book, David, the first time I walked into a, court, into a courtroom in New Orleans, it was 2006. And I walked into the courtroom and there were people in suits everywhere. No one was standing at a particular table. So it wasn't clear who the defenders were and who the prosecutors were. You knew who the judge was. He was up on a bench with a robe and you knew who the accused were because they were lined up against the wall in orange jumpsuits and shackles. 
And the judge started calling cases. And the judge would call a name and a voice would waft up from the suits. You didn't know what suit the voice belonged to. No one in a suit ever stood next to anyone in an orange jumpsuit. And within 15 or 20 seconds, David, they'd be on to the next case. And this went on until the judge called out a name and there was no voice. And the judge turned to the orange jumpsuits and said, is Mr. So-and-so here? And a man stood up. Judge said, where's your lawyer? The man said, I haven't seen a lawyer since I got locked up. Judge said, how long you been locked up? The man said, 70 days. Judge said, thank you, sir. Sit down and went on with the processing. And it struck me that even more than the fact that this man was locked up for 70 days without a lawyer, no one was phased, right? And I think that was what you can see in courtrooms across America is processing cases and the human beings responsible for administering justice have lost sight of their own role in doing to other people's children something we would never tolerate for our own children. Yeah, the jadedness and the acceptance of things as they are uh, is a poison all by itself, and it leaves the whole system skewed in the wrong direction. No, and, and it's so true. And, and, and David, I tell that story, and I want to be clear, I don't mean to pick on the individuals. I think one thing I've learned in this work, um, I think before I started doing this work, I believed a lot of this was about bad people. Um, and there still are some people that have no business being in the system, but for the most part, it's about bad systems uh -huh. that shape people into human beings they never would have recognized as young professionals. And, and my, my, my wife was a school teacher before she left that work to, to, to help me start Gideon's Promise. And she did teach for America. And she worked in a under-resourced school in, in, in Washington, D.C. And she was spirited and energetic and desperately wanted to help these children. And there were teachers who had been there 20, 30 years who had just become so demoralized. They were just waiting till the clock end, hit the end of the day so they could send the kids home. Um, you know, they stopped caring about the kids. They weren't bad people. They were thrown into systems that were under-resourced and the culture was such that you process. That happens in the legal system as well. That's what we deal with. Yeah, such an important idea, the idea of systems, not people, yeah. what systems do. Let's pick that point back up when we come back from a quick break. Our guest is Jonathan Rapping. He is the uh, founder and president of Gideon's Promise, also author of a book by the same name. Stick with us, we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guest, a returning guest, is Jonathan Rapping. He is the founder and president of Gideon's Promise, a national organization that works to bolster public defense as a movement to change how the criminal justice system works and to restore and maintain the humanity of people doing this important work. John, before the break, we were talking about the fact that the problem is not people, but systems. And this really struck me because it's something I have heard and talked to other people about so often in the last 15 months uh, since the, the terrible day of the murder of George Floyd, we have had system conversations about police, about prosecutors, about judges, about prisons. I mean, it was going on before that. I don't mean it just started that day, but it's the air has been thick with it. And uh, my sense from reading your book is that you very much want to see public defense in the same way. You want to have the same conversation and you uh, really do think that there are ways that that system not only has done a lot of damage, as we were talking about before the break, but can be changed and transformed. Now, how do you go about that? What's on your list? I know you talk about culture. Yeah. And I think when I talk about culture, um, you, you know, I think we can't understand culture without understanding a narrative that has always been part of America that otherizes certain populations. There have always been 
populations in America. Certainly black and brown people have always been included in those groups that have been seen as less human. And, and I think that, that over the last few years, as we've been exposed to cell phone footage that have shown the violence visited upon disproportionately black people in the streets by police, the, the, the murder of George Floyd, as you point out, Eric Garner, uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, uh, we know about Breonna Taylor. Um, I think over the last 18 months, as this pandemic has hit, we have seen the nation sort of awaken to the fact that this violence is happening on the streets. And I think what public defenders understand and what I think we're trying to really um, connect to this movement is that most people survive police encounters. And when they do, they are thrown into a criminal legal system where they're also subjected to violence, but it's a, a routine violence, a normalized violence, an invisible violence that happens when there are no cell phones turned on, when CNN isn't broadcasting. It's a violence that happens when people are held on money bonds simply because they are too poor to pay to get out, although they're presumed innocent. A violence that happens when people are overcharged in an effort to coerce them into pleading guilty to reduce the time they're facing. A violence that happens when they're sentenced to draconian sentences in really dangerous, violent prisons. That violence is normal. It happens every day. And it's only public defenders who are in that space to interrupt that violence. And if we really care about the people impacted, it's the same people, the same communities yes. who experience the violence by police. If we care about them, we have to make sure the only advocates there to fight for them in the space where there are no cameras have the resources, the training, the spirit to do the work that needs to be done. That is, that requires uh creating that culture of caring right and that depends on maintaining a certain set of values that is centered around clients talk a little bit about that and why it's important yeah i think it is so important because again if we see the legal system as a system that is really only about ensuring that constitutional rights are protected. Constitutional rights are, are amorphous. You can't get your hands around them. You can't meet them and care about them. Um, we really have to understand that it is a system that deals with people, that deals with human beings. And so we've seen movements um, over the last couple of years, the, the quote unquote progressive prosecutor movement, Yes, is a movement where we are um, pushing for less punitive prosecutors to take over offices, and we see them as the key to reform because we know prosecutors have done so much harm over the last 50 years. We're electing judges. We're trying to elect judges in places where judges are, 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 are open to being less punitive, to being more more empathetic, but even the best judges, even the best prosecutors, they can't, they can't truly treat people with dignity if they don't know anything about the human being, their decisions impact. And in our system, the only way people learn about the human beings is through public defenders. And these public defenders have to do more than just try to protect constitutional rights. They have to learn the stories. They have to get to know the, the parents, the families, the communities, the, the friends, so they can bring that whole person into the courtroom so that the most egalitarian prosecutors and judges can act on their progressive instincts. Without public defenders, we don't know the people, so we can't have a humane system. That's why public defenders are so key to having a truly humane system. Without them, the stories never emerge. Right. And that's key to helping all the other actors or forcing the other actors to do the right things and to treat them as human beings, perhaps human beings who have made mistakes, but human beings nonetheless. You also talk in the book and elsewhere 
about the importance of independence. And I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that because not all public defender or public defense operations have the kind of independence necessary to do the work in a robust way. Well, that's right. And so you have a lot of actors in the system whose priority is efficiency, is saving money, um, and, and public defenders, by definition, are supposed to stand up for human beings against those kinds of pressures and represent the interests of the human beings, push back against those pressures. And in many places, the very people who are concerned about the, the, the pocketbook or are concerned about clearing dockets quickly actually have power over who gets to be a public defender. There are places where county commissioners who decide how the budget gets spent appoint the person who heads the public defender office. There are places where judges get to choose what lawyer represents someone who can't afford a lawyer. And as I talked about earlier in the program, as a public defender, when you recognize that if you piss that person off, if you fight that person too hard, you might not get that appointment, you might not get that job, that's when you don't have the independence you need. Public defenders need the independence to fight the system. And if they have to also beg the system for their job, they're conflicted. And that happens far too often in far too many places across the country, David. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, one of the you mentioned uh, working in D.C. for the public defender service and one of the big, big achievements of that operation from its very first day was that it was independent and that it was very, very uncommon at that point. Yeah. Uh, more so now. I mean, you do have more agencies that are. Uh, but that was one of the best things about what was then and still is now probably the best public defender office in the country. So with all of this together, um, I know some people will will simply say, isn't this a resource issue? Because it, you can have all these things, but if you're so short staffed that you got to manage 500 cases a year or something absurd like that. I ran into one of my former students the other day, uh, and uh, he's left our public defender's office after a very good run. And he told me I was closing 200 cases a year. I mean, that's ultimately about resources. So what do you do about that? What's your take? So, so it is, I just think it's a mistake to try to divorce resources and independence from culture. And what I mean by that is this, I'm going to share another story. And I, I, I worry that I may have shared it back on episode 18 and I can't. No worries, remember. friend. No uh, worries but, at all. But there is a story I frequently tell about a, a, a hearing I watched um, where there was a man testifying. It was in Tennessee and he was representing the public defenders of Tennessee. He was elected by the public defenders to be uh, their spokesperson. He was the president of the Tennessee Public Defender Commission. And he was asked a simple question, do you have enough resources? He said, let me tell you, I've got a five county district. I have five courthouses. And he said, I have five lawyers and one investigator. He said, last year we closed 4,000 cases. Okay, that's 800 cases per lawyer. And he went on to say, so let me assure you that there is one district in Tennessee that has enough. He said, we are blessed. He went on to brag about his five lawyers as being experienced. He said they are good at processing. He said they are efficient. He said they are time savers. Those were the adjectives he used with pride to describe his lawyers. And I, I share that video with public defenders when I do training. And I say, I'm convinced that man didn't come out of law school 30 years ago saying, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to help process 800 people <laughs> a year into cages. I think I'll be a public defender. Right? Yeah. He was very slowly and subtly shaped by a system that thought that was all that poor people deserved. And I tell that story because I always say, we could give that man all the resources he needs. We could give him complete independence. 
The problem is after 30 years, he's lost sight of what good public defense looks like. If we gave him all the resources and the independence, he might work Monday and take the rest of the week off because he wouldn't think he has anything else to do. Not because he's a bad person, but because the culture shaped him. So I think the lack of resources, the lack of independent created a culture where lawyers learned to take shortcuts, learned to process, and ultimately came to see that as good lawyering. But just throwing the resources in the independence doesn't enough. run through that culture that's developed over 40, 50, 60 years. We have to actively have a strategy to change the culture. And what's the strategy? How do you do that on some kind of national or, or statewide basis in a way that will sustain itself yeah. and and keep going because if if you can't do that, we've seen those kind of things attempted and not always work in policing, say my area. And so, how do you do that? What's the prescription? So, I mean, this is really what the book is all about. And I think when I first started understanding that culture was an issue when I when I moved to Georgia, I started doing research on organizational culture, and I I learned that no one was talking about it in criminal justice. But if you look at the business world. It is the heart of, of, of what they teach. People who run businesses, run industry, understand that culture makes and breaks industry. Fortune 500 companies get this. And, and as I did the research, what I learned really to, to really make it simple is ultimately culture is about values. And if you want to change culture, you have to identify people who share a certain value set, help them operate in a way that allows them to internalize that value set until they become their deep-seated assumptions, right? They're, they're sort of deeply entrenched values. So They're so deeply entrenched, you just act on them without even realizing it. And when the entire organization embraces a new value set, you've changed culture. That takes years. What we do in public defense, David, at Gideon's Promise, we have a model that we call values-based recruitment, values-based training, values-based mentorship. We recruit lawyers who are open to a set of identified core client-centered values. Our training teaches them how to practice consistently with those values and gives them strategies to resist the pressures to abandon them. They then get mentors so that whenever they run into challenges, they have mentors who help them think about how to resolve them consistently with the values. And what we've seen over the years is offices that had three lawyers with those values became six lawyers, eight lawyers, 10 lawyers. And as the office starts to embrace those values from the bottom to the top, the leaders, you change culture. It takes time, it takes resources, but I believe we can do that with prosecutors, with police, with judges. And I think that we have to, because if we just say to police, we're gonna make you wear a camera, police may not wanna get caught kicking the hell out of somebody, but if they still think it's okay to kick the hell out of someone, they're gonna find ways to do it when the camera's not on. We need to have a generation of police that wanna treat people with respect. Just giving them cameras doesn't do that. It might just stop them from doing what they want to do so visibly. And that's true with prosecutors and judges and unfortunately public defenders. The word, ladies and gentlemen, is values. Values. That is Jonathan Rapping. He is an educator extraordinaire, as you could hear, an innovator and a leader in criminal justice and how public defenders and public defense fit into that. He's the founder and president of Gideon's Promise, now a national organization that trains and supports public defenders. And he's the author of Gideon's Promise, a public defense movement to transform criminal justice that was published by Beacon Press. We've got a link to it up on our website. Check it out. John, thank you for being my guest again here on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from Progress Times and the ever-reliable ABA Journal News Online. This episode concerns lawyer Eric Jarvis of Mission, Texas. 
Now, most people who think about the legal system, whether they are lawyers or not, probably understand that lawyers sometimes represent clients who may be, shall we say, less than savory characters. They may even be, well, guilty. We must not look down on a lawyer who represents an accused criminal. Not only is everyone entitled to a defense, but not all accused are, in fact, guilty. This isn't a hard sell to me. I was a defense lawyer myself, and most lawyers you would meet understand all of this implicitly. Even if they themselves would not represent the accused or the guilty, they know well enough that doing so is a long-standing and honorable part of what the legal profession does. But, but, we also know that there are lines one simply does not cross in doing this work. And perhaps the clearest one of all is lawyers may not assist clients in committing their crimes. May not. And it's not just a matter of core legal ethics. It's a matter of not assisting someone else to commit a crime. You might call it, in fact, we do call it, aiding and abetting. And it makes you an accomplice. Well, apparently, lawyer Eric Jarvis missed those days in criminal law and legal ethics class. We start with lawyer Jarvis's completely legal conduct, accessing an online system called PACER. This is a publicly available computer system for accessing federal court documents. Nothing wrong at all with an attorney accessing PACER. Lawyer Jarvis accessed some criminal complaints on PACER in some drug cases. Criminal complaints are the charging documents in many federal criminal cases, something like a grand jury indictment. Nothing wrong so far. Perhaps those were his clients. Or the complaints provided insight in cases in which he represented other people. Well, no and no. This wasn't Lawyer Jarvis's reason for gathering the complaints, and research for his clients wasn't what he did with them. Nope. He was supplying this information, these criminal complaint documents, to members of Mexican drug trafficking organizations for purposes of their businesses. We all probably hear from time to time news of a big seizure of drugs at the border or on a highway or narcotics hidden in a shipment of something completely legal. These loads of narcotics belong to some big drug supplier, likely a cartel or other large organization, and they were on their way to someone else, drug dealers who plan to sell the product. So what happens when there's a seizure in transit? Well, the sellers never receive the shipment, so they have nothing to sell. And they suddenly become very interested, extremely interested, in showing the cartel folks that they never got the stuff and that the cartel people should not think that they stole it and are just lying about a law enforcement seizure of the goods. We can all understand why. It will help the sellers not be murdered, and perhaps they can live another day to sell another load. So how do the sellers show the cartel that the load of narcotics really was seized? Here's something perhaps not all of us knew. This is where PACER comes in. Those criminal complaints show what was seized and where and when. And they are therefore used to show the cartel, Hey guys, here's what happened to the dope load that George had in his tractor trailer that day. We didn't take it. The U.S. government did at the border crossing. And now can you please send us a new load to sell? Lawyer Jarvis simply decided to obtain and sell these criminal complaints to traffickers when a seizure was made. He performed a perfectly legal act, obtaining the complaints, but then delivered the information over his phone for the illegal purpose of assisting the drug sellers, a violation of federal law. He was also, at other times, 
paid to represent drug traffickers from the proceeds of drug sales, knowing that that's where the money came from. Another federal crime. Lawyer Jarvis has pled guilty and he'll be sentenced October 1st of 2021. He faces up to five years in federal prison and let's not even discuss his bar status. As the ump at your softball game said last week, he's out. According to lawyer Jarvis' own lawyer, quote, Eric is very remorseful for his lack of better judgment and looks forward to getting this chapter of his life behind him. Yes, I'll bet he does. I admit to being taken aback a bit by this statement. A lack of better judgment? Is that what this is? Like buying a candy bar with the money mom gave you for the church collection plate? Dude, he sold information to the Mexican cartels. Hasn't anybody over there ever watched Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? Good luck getting past that chapter. I hear it could take up to five years to read. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and with it we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? You can go to that website and look for the Ask Dave part on our pages, and I'll see if I can give your question a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your question in brief. Call 412 407 3389. Again, 412 407 3389. Remember, we are a listener supported show. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. The news is out. 2020 saw a 30% rise in murders nationwide. And 2021 isn't looking so good either. Some want us to turn back to the aggressive policing of the past. But is there a better way to stem the tide of gun violence? What actually works? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at Criminal Injustice Podcast. Dot com.